guys, today we're looking at the second letter in Revelation. The first was to the Ephesians, and the second one is to the church in Smyrna, and there's five left. And remember that as we look at these letters, each of the seven letters has an identical anatomy. Every letter starts off with, this letter is addressed to the angel of such and such church, and the angel is the pastor of the church. Um, Each letter opens with a specific introduction where Jesus says, this is who I am, and every Introduction is unique to the letter, and then every letter focuses on a particular behavior or behaviors of the church he's writing to, and every letter closes with a call to consideration, not just for the people in that church, but all of us, and we are a byproduct of the church in Smyrna, Ephesus, Pergamum, etc., so this letter is not just for them, it's for us and all the people of faith in between. So we're going to be called that anyone with ears, and we all got them, Anyone with ears must listen and understand what the Spirit is saying. The Spirit of God is going to say something to us today. We need to listen, and we need to ask God, what do you want me to understand? With that in mind, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say that they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you, But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. So big picture, here's what God is saying to us in that letter. I know that those of you in this room and those in the church of Smyrna back in the day, I know that you guys, you don't have everything that you want in life and you don't have everything that you need in life. And all of us can agree with that. I don't have everything that I want and neither do you. You don't have everything that you need and neither do I. And I know that people often attack you because of your faith. They often attack you for what you believe in. They often attack you when you stand up for the name of Jesus for the truths in this book. I know that you suffer in my name, that you are suffering, and I know that you're about to suffer even more. But if you keep your eyes on me, everything will be okay in the end. I know you're having a tough time, but if you keep your eyes on me through whatever your tough time is, everything will be okay in the end. So, Please be encouraged to reach into your chairs and grab your pen and paper if you want to write notes, doodle if that helps you focus, or write a prayer as we go. But let's take a closer look at each of these sentences and see what is God saying to us as a group and what is God saying to me personally right now today. Revelation 2, 8. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last who was dead but is now alive. Smyrna is present-day Izmir. It's the city of Izmir. It still exists in the nation of 
Turkey. All seven churches that were written to in these letters exist in modern-day Turkey. That's the Old Testament land where so much, New Testament land really, of the Bible was written after Jesus. So Smyrna um, in modern-day Turkey is currently the third wealthiest city in Turkey, um, but I think it used to be the first wealthiest. So there's a lot of money. Um, I've been to Smyrna, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but when I'm in Smyrna, the way I look at it, Izmir, Smyrna, this is like if the woodlands existed in Turkey. There's a lot of money there. There's a lot of affluence. There's a lot of industry. There's a lot of business. Everybody's got nicer things there than other places. That's how I equate it. So that gives you guys a little bit of an understanding of what life is like there. So we have, as a church, Wood's Edge has a very special connection to the entire nation, the entire country of Turkey. And you may have picked up on this last week, but I'm going to really hammer it home. And this is good for us to know for today and for the future messages for the Revelation churches. But Turkey is the first focused country of Wood's Edge. And I don't know if you know that. But as a church, we are called to pray for the nations, to send out apostles and missionaries and disciples to spread the word. And are we supposed to do it everywhere? Yeah. But are we also supposed to do it specifically? Absolutely. And the first country that we as a church said we really feel led to share Jesus here is Turkey. And that's in large part due to the fact that 12 years ago, this week, we had a very large vision trip to Turkey led by Pastor Jeff. And I was on that trip. And so there's about 30 of us that went to Turkey and we went to Istanbul, and we went to Smyrna slash Izmir, and here's our group. And this is one the day that we went to Ephesus, and we got to sit on the steps of the great Colosseum that, is, that appears in um, the Bible, I think twice. And here's our group of 30 or so, and there's a few Turkish believers, there's a few missionaries that also joined us, but Jeff Wells is in that picture. Uh, my buddy Jason Shepard, who hired me, is in that picture. Sharon Sidwell on the far left in the red, she now on behalf of Wood's Edge, lives in Turkey as a missionary, but we have some super studs of the faith there, and we're not on a tour here just checking things out and saying where they used to kill people. This is us praying on the steps of the Colosseum in Ephesus and asking the Lord, what would you have us do in Turkey? How would you have us make you known? Who are we supposed to partner with? And we are doing it rather discreetly because we can't just openly pray because Turkey is a Muslim country. We didn't want to offend anyone, and we didn't want to get in trouble either. So here is a picture of our first vision trip to Turkey. On this trip, my first, just a personal story, the first prophetic word ever spoken over me as a person, as a believer, was fulfilled in Turkey. And um, that's a pretty amazing thing. And I hope you guys have the privilege of experiencing that a handful of times, at least, in your life. But the week before I went to Turkey, a gentleman named Dubs Beck came up to me that I only had a passing relationship with at Wood's Edge. And he said, Justin, last night I was in my Barca lounger. It was three in the morning and I couldn't sleep. And you were on my mind. And I was just filled with this picture and these prayers for you. I understand you're about to go to Turkey. And I had a vision of you last night leading a bunch of Turkish women to Jesus. And I was like, what? I have who are you again? Yeah, I was in my recliner, and I had a vision that you were going to preach the gospel to a bunch of women in Turkey. And I was like, okay, uh, bye. Like, that was, I didn't know what to make of it. He prayed for me. 
Well, the last night that we were in Turkey, next picture, I was in the Blue Mosque. It's a place of Muslim worship. It's where people worship Allah. And I was on the ground with my face to the floor in the visitor's section of the Blue Mosque. And I was praying in the same style that Muslims pray. But I was praying to Jesus. And I was asking him, if there's anyone here that you would have me share Christ with, would you just bring them over and ask me, what are you doing? And this group of women and a couple dudes in the back come up to me and they ask, what are you doing? Are you not a Westerner? Why are you praying in this place? And I said, I just feel like I was supposed to pray. And they're like, are you praying to Allah? And I was like, no. And they said, who are you praying to? And I said, Jesus. And they said, will you tell us about him? And we went outside and for two hours, I hung out this, this group and shared Jesus Christ with them. And it wasn't until after that I was like, oh my God, that's what Dubs said would happen. So that happened a year ago tonight, not 12 years ago, tonight. I was looking through my pictures and I saw the date and I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's a, no, November 5th, 20, 2005 is when that happened. Um, another cool thing that happened to me on that trip and cool stuff always happens when you go on mission trips, and you though, that have been know. Um, you know that God has given me a gift for photography to make him known through my art, and so many of you have similar giftings, and I love that, and it could be sports or art or whatever, but God has given me a gift for photography, and I asked the Lord our last day in Turkey before we went to the airport, I was just walking through the city streets, and I was like, would you give me a photograph that represents Islam? Would you give me a picture of what Islam looks like. And as I was walking through the city, I found this pile of broken mirror glass, and I took a photo of it, and in the reflection was this Muslim place of worship. And after I took the picture, I just thought about it, and I prayed about it, and I was like, this, this was the picture I asked for. Islam is very similar to Christianity. They have a lot of our prophets in there. They have a lot of our scripture in there. They've got mentions of Jesus in the Quran. There's a lot of similarities between Islam and Christianity. But it's not a complete picture. In fact, it's a broken picture of Christianity because while Jesus is mentioned, he is not the Savior. He is not the way and the truth and the life. And so it's not a complete picture of Christianity. And in Islam, the only way you can get to their heaven is by works, by doing. And that is not the case, thank God, for us. We are the only religion where you are only saved by grace, by believing in who Jesus is. Is. And so I took this photo and I prayed about it, and that's what I took away from it. And Pastor Jeff was so impressed with it that he used it as his sermon the week after we got back to church. So our church has a strong connection to Turkey. I have a strong connection to Turkey, but our student ministry has a strong connection to Turkey too. Back in 2013, the first time, the only time so far that I've been to Teen Street, and many of you have been there. It's this gathering of 5,000 young people, teenagers from all over the world where they gather together to worship the Lord. And a lot of kids, this is the only time they get to go to church all year because they live in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian. And I'm in, Tur or I'm in this gathering in Germany of 5,000 people, students and student pastors from all over the world. We are the only group from America that's there. And there is only one group from Turkey that's there. And I have a heart for Turkey. And wouldn't you know the first day I meet that one group and they meet me. And I meet this man named Yetkin. And the minute I meet him, I'm like, this, this guy is my soul's brother. 
I love this man. We connected quickly. We bonded deeply immediately. His students and my students became friends. We hung out with each other all week. Here's a picture of Yetkin and the group that he brought. He's on the right. He's like kind of a bouncer-looking dude. He's super swole. He could kill any of us if he wanted to. And these are some of his students. And Yetkin and I and the Turkish students and the Woods Edge students became fast friends back in 2013. So much so that I was like, man, when I take over student ministry, which would happen a year later, I want to take our students to Turkey. And so Brooke and I would take a vision trip of our own to Turkey. And we would meet Yetkin there. And we would hang out with him. Next picture. We would hang out with him for over a week and pray together and talk together, not how can Woods Edge partner with you in Turkey, but how can the student ministry partner with you? And the following year, we took our first trip to Turkey with students. And you might recognize some of the people in that picture. There's Sidney Williams, Paul Zetterberg, Holly Roddy, Sidney Pryor, and more. And half of that group is students and people you know, and the other half are all Turks. They're all Muslim background believers who have decided to believe in Jesus Christ. And that was by far and away, for me personally, the best student mission trip I've ever been on. And then the year after this, I would bring... Yetkin to Texas, and Yetkin would spend a couple weeks with various ministries and myself. He slept at our house one night and hung out with my kiddos, but Yetkin would come and do life with us for a little while. And that was a joy and a privilege, and we began praying and talking about another trip. So hopefully, this summer, we will take some of you back to Turkey, and we will visit multiple locations that we are reading about, including Izmir, this summer. However, we need to pray that that can happen because currently the U.S. and Turkey are posturing at each other, their governments are anyway, and so it is not legal to travel there at the moment, and we need that to change if we're going to do our trip. But if it changes, um, I would love to take a dozen of you guys to Turkey and visit some of these churches from Revelation. So you have a special connection not only to Turkey by default through our church, but to this city of Smyrna slash Izmir because you're part of the student ministry. So, let's continue. This message is from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. Why is it pertinent that Jesus would address himself in that manner, that Jesus would point out those characteristics of himself in a letter that's all about persecution? Well, I think it's beautifully appropriate that in a letter that's going to focus on suffering for Jesus, being persecuted for your faith, that Jesus would remind her, I was dead, but I'm now alive. You might suffer for a minute, but things are going to get better. They may kill you for your faith, but you will be alive with me in heaven tomorrow if that happens. I know, the Lord says, about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know about your suffering. Every one of us in one way or another in this room is suffering. I know about your poverty, and whether financially, circumstantially, or just spiritually, we're all impoverished in this room, but you are rich. I know your circumstances don't say you're rich, but when you're with me, you're rich. The world teaches us, and you know this is true, that money equals success, security, and happiness. It's the gospel of the United States of America. You all have a right to be happy. You all have a right to do whatever you want. You all have a right to make as much money as you can and buy the biggest house available and buy the sweetest ride that you can afford. It's all about success, security, and happiness. 
And that's what money will get you. Is that what God says about money? Let's see. Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one, you will despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So, God is saying, relying on money, does that equal success? No, relying on money equals slavery. God says, if you rely on money to make you happy, it will enslave you. We should all take a word of caution about that. I would ask if if it can help you relate to that question. One of the things that equates to stature, success, influence, wealth in this age is, do you have a smartphone? Do you have an iPhone? Not everybody does. Not everybody can afford it. I mean, I, I think those suckers are like a grand now. I don't know what's going to happen when mine breaks. I think I'm just going to have to go back to sending smoke signals or get a beeper because that's a lot of money. But ask yourself, be honest in your estimation of yourself. Would it be safe to say that you're enslaved to your iPhone? How much time you spend on that thing? You spend more time on that thing than you do in the Word? You spend more time looking at that thing than you do looking for opportunities to make Jesus known? Hey, man, I'm guilty too. But would you say you're enslaved to it? Are you enslaved to social media? I certainly can be. All right, what else does God say about money? The rich in Proverbs 18 think of their wealth as a strong defense, and they imagine it to be a high wall of safety. So America says relying on money equals security. God says relying on money equals a fantasy. 2008, 2007, financial crisis hits. I got friends that are retiring from the oil industry who have worked for 30, 40 years, have worked their whole life, have money like nobody's business, have 401ks on top of 401ks. They're getting ready to retire and just enjoy the sweet life and spend all their time on the golf course. They've got millions of dollars in the bank. The financial crisis hits, and in overnight, they're rich when they went to bed, and they're flat broke when they woke up. They went to bed with everything, everything that they could imagine having, and they woke up, and they're like, I got to go get an, I gotta go to another job at 65. That security, that, that paper in the bank provided, gone, like a fantasy, like a puff of smoke. Man, be careful how much you rely on money for security. Psalm 52, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but instead trusted in the abundance of his riches. He sought refuge. He sought safety in his own destruction. Relying on money equal happiness? No, in fact, it's the opposite. It equals destruction in the eyes of God. Let me just tell you this. Nobody yet in the history of the world has been able to buy their way into heaven. In fact, in another place in the scripture, it says it is easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than to get to heaven. Something like that. I know I botched it, but I think you know the scripture. It's easier to do something absolutely ridiculously impossible than be rich and wealthy and rely on money and still get to heaven. So, A warning for us in this is be careful how important you allow money to become 
in your life. Be careful if money, if stuff is your greatest desire, if money and stuff and reputation and stature are what you find security and worth in. Be careful. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews. They they say they are God's kids, but they are not. In fact, their synagogue, their church, belongs to Satan. This is the third time in as many sentences, including the letter to Ephesus, where Jesus has specifically addressed the danger of people who talk the talk but refuse to walk the walk. Jesus, in fact, calls them a synagogue, a church of Satan. So there's this group of people, and they said, oh, we believe in God, we believe in the Bible, we're for you, we're Christians too, but it says they were actually worshiping Satan. They were actually serving the desires of the devil. I looked up synagogue of Satan because I'm like, what exactly does that mean? And here's what it means according to the words in the Greek. A synagogue of Satan is any group of people who intentionally misrepresent God's word. It's any group of people who intentionally disobey God's word. It's any group of people who intentionally persecute Christians. And I would ask, are there any modern-day groups that do any of those things? Is this suffering and persecution limited to 2,000 years ago, or is it still around today? You guys, there's more of it today than in the history of the planet. Are there any modern-day groups out there who intentionally misrepresent God's word? Yeah, there's a lot. The one that comes to my mind is the group that says abortion is okay. A woman can do whatever she wants with her body. A man can do whatever he wants with his body. They take scripture and they twist it. God only intended good for us, so why wouldn't he let me do whatever I want? Speaking of abortion being okay, and when I Googled it and was looking for scriptures for God's heart on this, the top 10 entries were all newspaper articles and statistics that quoted scripture and said God's okay with it, and every single one of them were misquoting scripture and misinterpreting what God said. Here's what God says about abortion in the Old Testament, Exodus 21. If a man accidentally strikes a pregnant woman, causing her to give birth prematurely and her baby dies, the punishment must match the injury a life for a life. If a man accidentally hits a woman in any way and it causes her to miscarry and her baby dies, God says, you kill him. You end him. A life for a life. You guys, that's if it's an accident. How does God feel when we do it on purpose? When we intentionally say, I'm just not ready for a child yet. That was a mistake. Rip it out of my body and kill it. In Psalm 139, it says that our souls exist before our bodies, which means at conception, there's life. There's soul. I think when you and I get to heaven, we will find that the greatest sin of our nation were the millions of babies that we allowed, that we encouraged, that our country profited on by murdering them willy-nilly. God is not okay with abortion. 
What else? Are there any modern day groups that intentionally disobey God's word? There are hundreds. There are thousands. There are groups out there that say pornography is no big deal. There are groups out there. There are scientists out there that say masturbation is totally healthy. In fact, you should do it. There are groups out there that say getting drunk is fine. Just just don't drive a car. There are groups out there that say homosexuality is not a sin. God is totally fine with it. Well, what does God say about it? 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. How, how much clearer can he make it for us? He's not okay with those things. They are sin. We are called as God's people to say, this is right according to God. This is wrong. And we know he has told us this is right and this is wrong. And I'll say a little bit of something on the piece of homosexuality and the fact that it's a sin. Did it say it was worse than all those other sins? No. Did it say, man, really go after people that wrestle with the temptation to be homosexual more than the others? No, it was right in there with cheating people, being a bully, being a drunkard. God is not hating one group of people more than another, but he is hating all of the sin that is hurting all of the people. Homosexuality, homosexuals, drunks, abusive people, bullies, it's all sin. But we enter into that sin when we say, no, God's fine with it. He's not. Because none of those things profit our soul. How serious is he about it? You will not get to heaven if you practice this, if you indulge this, if you give your life to this. It's that serious. What about any modern day groups that persecute Christians? Do those exist? Here's a picture of a map put out by the American Family Association. They call it the bigotry map. There's over 200 groups on here that on their websites and their mission statement, certainly by their behavior, are absolutely and openly anti-Christian, anti-Jesus. It's why they exist. The American Family Association has identified groups and organizations that openly display bigotry toward the Christian faith. These groups are deeply intolerant toward the Christian religion. Their objective, why they exist, is to silence Christians to remove all public displays of Christian heritage and faith in America. You know what their greatest weapon is? The American justice system. If I'm a small business owner and I'm just like, I can't do this because of my faith in God, I'm not judging you, I just can't bring myself to do this, they sue you, you lose your business, you lose your home, you can end up in jail. If you are just working at a business and you don't do what they want you to do, they can sue you, They can prosecute you. You can end up in jail. And it's why these organizations exist. And they're deeply rooted in government, schools, lobbying. Persecution is alive and well in America. In fact, it's thriving. What about in the world? Are there any groups out there that hate Christians in the world? Man, come on. You know there are. Here's a photo of the world. Every country that's not gray is a country 
that is not for Christianity. In fact, they're against it. The yellow ones, they strongly discourage it. Christianity is on the decline. They don't want Christians around. The light orange ones, they can jail you for your faith. They can persecute you for your faith. They can remove your rights because of your faith. Turkey is one of those countries. The deep orange ones, of which there's many, will kill you legally if you're a believer in their country, especially if you were born there and become a believer. They will murder you. They will cut off your head. Persecution is healthier now, is more widespread now than in the history of the world, than in the history of our faith. And Revelation promises that those colors are going to increase. There will be a day in our not-too-distant future where it will very likely be illegal to be a Christian in this country. Revelation promises that the end times, people will be losing their heads left and right. Guillotines will be set up in places like Market Street, and they'll be marching Christians in there and saying, renounce your faith, and if you don't, they kill you. They murder you. They murder your kids. They murder your wife. So, what's God telling us? Why is he warning us about this? He's telling us if we choose to live our lives according to God's word, according to our faith in Jesus, we need to really know God's word because there's a lot of people out there that like to twist it. We need to know it better than they do. It's sad that non-believers know our Bible better than we do. We also need to know that we need to expect persecution. You need to expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. And we need to be willing to suffer for what we believe. Don't be afraid, though. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. God is warning us, again, we will suffer for our faith, so don't be surprised. Don't be scared. Now, we've talked quite a bit about suffering, but let me ask a question. Is there any good in suffering? Does God use suffering? Does he redeem suffering? Can we grow in our suffering? Absolutely. He redeems all things for the good of those who love him. 1 Peter chapter 1, thinking, is there any good in suffering? Be truly glad, for there is wonderful joy ahead. Even though we must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that our faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though our faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when our faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring us much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Is there any good in suffering? Absolutely positively, a resounding yes, because God uses moments of suffering to prove to us that we believe, to take our faith and increase it. I love that this letter to the church in Smyrna addresses the exact same things that our culture wrestles with on a daily basis, especially right here in Montgomery and Harris County, Texas. The things that these guys wrestled with are the exact same things that you and I wrestle with. The temptations of money, materialism, and peer pressure. I, I, I could do a whole talk right now, keep you here until four o'clock. Oh God, please don't. 
I hurt for you and the weight of the peer pressure that hangs over every single one of you. I hate the way that you are forced to compete and do better and better and better and better to the point of like suicide, mental breakdown, just at school. I hate the gravity of the peer pressure that wants to pull you down. I hurt for you. The people in Smyrna hurt too. They know what it felt like. I think money, materialism, and peer pressure are the biggest temptations to sell out in our faith that exist in our culture. So this is a perfect letter for us to pray about, to consider, to try and understand, what's this look like for me? Last week, we talked about a verse that I use frequently. This is the recipe on how to be saved. If you've never made the decision, I'm about to tell you how. Romans 10, 9 through 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's two steps in there, and just to be clear, he repeats the recipe for us. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. You guys, many people believe in their heart, but very few people openly declare it. Many of us sit in church and hear the pastor say, just say a little prayer in your privacy of your seat and you're saved forever. That's not true. That's half. You also have to openly declare your faith. One time? Sure. Every day? Yeah. We're going to close. And I want to close by taking another look at my friend Yetkin. My friend Yetkin, who came to know Jesus in a miraculous fashion after growing up a Muslim, and when he did so, immediately, from the, from the word go, the minute he placed his hope in Jesus, that he believed in his heart, he also openly declared, and openly declaring your faith in a country like Turkey will cost you every single day. As I list a handful of examples of how Yetkin is persecuted for his faith, how Yetkin suffers for openly declaring his faith, I don't want you to just listen to his story and be like, that's horrible for him. I want you to listen and say, what would I do? How would I choose to believe, to declare in that moment? Would I be willing to do that for my faith? Example number one, because Yetkin has chosen to believe in Jesus as his savior in his heart, because he has openly declared that to anyone who asks, Yetkin cannot work in Turkey. Yetkin cannot get a job in his own home country because he's a Christian. Because when you openly declare your faith in a Muslim country that is ruled by and governed by a Muslim government, they take your driver's license and they stamp on it, Christian. So Yetkin, anytime he has to use his driver's license, the 99.9% of the time, Muslim person he hands it to looks at it and despise him, ridicule him, mock him. Think of the things you need a license to do in order to just live. Well, you need it to get a job. So when Yekin applies for the job, he can be the most qualified person by 10, and they're going to see on their Christian, and they're like, no job for you, buddy. When Yekin has to apply for a credit card, yeah, I don't think so. When Yetkin has to go and take care of a ticket, like the list goes on. Everybody that sees on his ID right there, right at the top, Christian is like, we're not doing it. We don't want anything to do with you. 
You're garbage. You, you bailed on Islam. We hate you. His own nation despises him. For him to live, the only way he can make money is by doing work on the computer for companies in other countries. So he does work sometimes for Woods Edge. He does work for Apple sometimes, but that's the only way he can make money. So a question for you guys. Would you declare your faith in Jesus Christ if you knew that at the moment you did, it would mean finding work afterwards would be a hundred times more difficult? Would you be willing to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus, he's my savior, if you knew that it meant that you were going to have a hard time, not, not just surviving, but like putting food on the table that day. And that's a day-to-day decision he's got to make every day. I, I don't know how I would do. That's a tough question. But it's one that we are called to consider when we look at a letter like this. Circumstance number two, because Yetkin has believed in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and openly declares his faith, guy can't even go to small groups without putting his life in danger. Yetkin and his students... Worship God, serve God, study God, just like we do. But they have to do it in absolute secrecy when they gather together. Because the government knows when you put your faith in Jesus. I mean, they put it, so they watch you. And business owners pay attention. And other people look and wonder, what are they doing? Do you know that something cool about how they worship God is that they use the exact same prayer cards every week that you do? And they use the exact same questions? Every time I go see him or he comes see me, I give him hundreds of them and they last him for a couple years. But they do church just like us. But when they do it, they do it in public and they have to pretend they're talking about something else. Because if somebody hears them say the name of Jesus or somebody sees them reading scripture, they can be beaten by the public and the public will not be prosecuted at all. They'll be encouraged. It can become a riot. It happens. People get beaten to death and then walk off. And they're like, what happened? And I'm like, oh, they got hit by a bus. And the cops are like, sounds good to me. So, another question. If you knew that coming here on Wednesday night could earn you a beating, would you still come? Would you openly declare your faith enough to come to church to study the word and worship the Lord if you knew there could be five or ten people up front that just tried to punch you as you walked in the door? Because that's something Yetkin has to face on a daily basis. That question should give us pause. That future literally could be just a few years away right here at home. Last question. Because Yetkin believes in his heart that Jesus is God and he openly declares it, he can't even use the name of Jesus in public. He can't worship in public. Um, Yetkin came and saw me in Texas. And the minute he got off the plane, he came and met me over at Woodlands Church. We were having an all-day prayer gathering there. And when he arrived, I broke away. I said hello. We hugged. It's so good that you're here. It's first time ever to come to America. It was a miracle he even got out of the country. And then I said, come and sit down and pray with us. And there's people walking by that we don't know and just strangers. There's a big campus and there's a lot going on. And we begin to pray in the name of Jesus. We're praying for Yetkin. We're praying for church, etc. And Yetkin starts to weep. And I'm like, like, are you, you got, like, jet lag? Like, what, are you okay? And he, through tears, stutters out, I cannot believe that you can use the name of Jesus with all of these people walking around and you don't have to be afraid. 
for the first couple minutes, he's looking around as we're praying like he was expecting to be lynched. Later that day, we would talk about that some more because I was just so impressed with how for granted I take our freedom here. And he said, being able to use the name of Jesus in public, that's true freedom. That's what I long for. I can't believe you have that. You guys, if you saw somebody in this room at Market Street tomorrow and they were just wrecked, they were just weeping and they were like, will you please, oh God, please pray for me right now. I got this going on. Would you be willing to pray for them in the name of Jesus in a public place if it meant somebody could kill you and nothing would happen to them? That's a question Yetkin has to ask all the time. It's a question we might have to ask someday in the near future too. You guys take the stage, Dwight. We're going to close up our sermon. I thank God that we live in a country where it is still legal to worship Jesus. And yet, so many of us, we hide our faith from our friends because we're embarrassed. We skip small groups for something like homework. And we rarely pray for anyone. I'm guilty of these things too. But when we refuse to suffer for Jesus in those moments to be inconvenienced a little bit, to potentially offend a friend, not purposefully, but just by standing up for the Lord. When we refuse to openly declare by word or deed, I believe in Jesus, we are just furthering ourselves from something that Yetkin's reminded of every day, and it's this from Matthew 10. My children, do not be afraid of those who want to kill your body for they cannot touch your soul. Fear only God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on each of your heads are numbered. Don't be afraid for you are far more valuable to your Father in heaven than flocks of sparrows. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will deny before my Father in heaven. That should give us great pause as we go around saying, oh, I believe I'm a Christian and our actions don't back it up. Or even worse, refusing to tell anyone and just locking it up and keeping it inside. Suffering for openly declaring your faith is not a burden, even though it feels like one. It's not something we should shy away from because suffering for your faith is a blessing. When you see an opportunity this week to stand up for Jesus in any way, shape, or form, and I pray you all have one, the next time that opportunity comes and you find that you are not willing to face it, it's okay. It's okay. God is using that moment, your indecision, to show you you need some more faith. And do you know that if you need more faith, all you have to do is ask He's using it to test you. He's using it to let you know, I am in need, so I'm going to ask the giver to
to supply. Don't be discouraged. Be desperate. Ask for more faith. And if you see an opportunity this week to stand for Jesus, and you do, you are willing, you do openly declare your faith by acting or praying or reading your Bible at Starbucks or whatever it looks like. Be encouraged. God is using that moment, that discomfort, that potential suffering to let you know you're mine. I got even bigger things for you tomorrow. I'm about to bless you with glory and honor. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches and whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. What does God really want us to understand from this letter today? What does he want us to consider this morning? I think it's this. How can I expect to say yes? How can I expect to openly declare my faith if somebody is facing me and wants to kill me if I can't even say no to peer pressure? How can I stand up for my faith in the face of a guillotine of losing my head if I'm too timid to get baptized? Or if I'm unwilling to pray for somebody in public? Or if I'm just too lazy to read my Bible? This letter to the church in Smyrna should challenge your faith and you should hear in it your father's encouraging voice. Man, you can do this. I'm not disappointed with you. I'm not angry at you. I just desire more for you. Not from you, for you. Stand up, Christian. Stand up, son and daughter. Be willing to be a little uncomfortable for me. I mean, I sent my son to die for you. And even if you suffer all day, every day, from this day until your last, it's going to be over like that. And then it's eternity. A crown of glory in paradise forever. It's worth it. Here's how I want to close today. We have our tithe and our communion available. Although in place of the tithe, I would encourage you guys to grab one of those orange tags. Grab one of those orange tags. Use 30 bucks, whether you got to beg for it, borrow it, or you got more than enough set aside and bless those kids with a Christmas. That's how I would love to see you tithe today. And we have communion. Just a reminder, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me how to suffer well. But I got a scripture that I've rewritten as a personal prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. And I would encourage every single person in this room, if you have any desire whatsoever to do better when battling the temptations of money, materialism, peer pressure, write this scripture out as your own personal prayer. God will answer it. He's watching us even now. And he's waiting to see which of my kids desires more faith. If they ask, I will give it. Here's the passage. Father, give me the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep your love is. Help me experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. And then I will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I give you, Lord, all the glory for you who are able through your mighty power at work within me to accomplish infinitely more than I might ask or think. Do you have a need in your life? That will take care of it. I encourage you guys to make this prayer your own. Write it out. And as you do, don't just put pen to paper, man. 
Put your heart in heaven. Jesus, I need you. I need this. I cannot do it on my own. Grab your pen and paper now, and I'm going to pray for us. And when we're done, let's worship the God who made a way for all of this to be possible. Jesus, as we make this plea to you, as we pray, would you move in power? Would you fill this room, fill every heart and mind with a renewed faith, with the infinite goodness that comes from you? You say, ask and you shall receive. We are asking. We are in need. We don't want to settle. We don't want our life to be built on money. We want our lives to be built on you because that's where we're headed, to you. Help us, Jesus.